Yes, Lord, we want to say that you are wonderful tonight. Lord, we want to raise up our voices to you tonight, Lord. And we want to praise the Lord. We want to say, Lord, there is no one like you. Oh, that you are worthy, Lord, that you are the most valuable being in the universe, that you are the creator God, that you have made us, that you have made us to worship you, you have made us to know you. Oh, would you come and speak to us tonight? Lord, would you come and refresh? Would you blow the wind of your spirit through uh, our hearts and our minds tonight, Lord? Come, Lord. We, will, we invite you here this evening. Let's just stay in an attitude of prayer. Let's just, even if we do things a bit different, it's okay. Let's stay in a bit of an attitude of prayer. Oh, we worship you, Lord. Oh, Lord, we're here for you. We are here because of you, Lord. Be honored. Be glorified. Be praised. We worship you tonight, Lord. Oh, we honor you, Lord. We bless your name. Yes, Lord, there's no one like you, Lord. Oh, we praise you, Lord. Oh, we praise you, Lord. Yeah, we say how great is our God. How great is our God. Lord, we'll see how great is our God. And oh, we'll see how great, how great is our God. You're the name, you're the name above all names. You are worthy of all praise. And my heart will sing, how great is our God. Come on, let's just sing, how great is our God. Let's raise up our voices. How great, yeah, yeah, is our God. Oh, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. You're the name above all names. You are worthy of all praise, and my heart will sing how great is our God. Yes, Lord, you are. You're the name above all names. No other name. You are worthy of all praise, and my heart will sing how great is our God. Let's just raise our voices right now. Say to the Lord our great ears in your own words. Raise up your voices. Yes, Lord, we want to say that you are awesome. Oh, that you are high and lifted up, Lord. Worthy, worthy, worthy is your name. Worthy is your name. Come on, let's just stretch our praise muscle. Stretch your muscle right now. Yes, Lord, we praise you tonight. We open up our hearts to you, Lord. Come and be honored and enthroned among us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name. Oh, we love you, Lord. Love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. <clears throat> Amen. 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 Why don't you sit down? Amen. Amen. Oh. Do I need this? Okay. <laughs> oh, it's just... Um, I love worshiping the Lord, man. I love to worship the Lord. He is so worthy of praise. You know, it's one thing that actually characterizes us as, um, as Christians. Like, God's people have always been singing. From when the birth of the church, they were singing. During persecution, they were singing. During good times, church was singing. 
And I wonder sometimes if, you know, sometimes we lose all that muscle of praise. We actually have to learn how to praise Him, learn how to worship Him. That it's got nothing to do with circumstance, got nothing to do with how we feel, but it's actually got everything to do with Him. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got a bad voice or the only place you ever sing is the shower. Uh, someone loves your singing. It's the Lord, you know. Um, he loves it. And I think for us just to make sure that we are enlarging our hearts, you know, don't ever get comfortable. Like, it, praise is never about you. It's actually about honoring Him. And so, He often requires worship and praise that it doesn't matter how you feel, or, but He is worthy. And, um, and so, you know, we want to mix things up. We want to stretch things in the Lord. And if anything I want to do tonight is even in what I have to share with you um, is actually on wor- is, is to, the response should be worship. I'm not preaching on worship. But actually, the response is on worship, because as we see, I've looked at who the Lord is. And actually, I want to preach from a book of the Bible that is a worship book of the Bible, Psalms. And I specifically want to look at Psalm 139. And then after we've done that, we're going to break bread together, and we're going to worship as a response to who God is after we've looked at this um, Psalm 139. And we're going to do it that way around this evening. Amen? Everyone good? Hope you've had a good week. Hope it's been as good as mine. Mine was awesome. I had an awesome week. Yeah, we went away um, with some, some friends and elders. It was a work week, but we had a lot of fun. You know, the 11th commandment, thou shalt have fun. So, I've entitled this evening's uh, message, Search Me, O God. Search me, O God. And it's actually on Psalm 139. And so as you look at the psalm, some of you know the psalm. In fact, I would guess that if I have to ask you what your favorite psalm is, some of you might even say Psalm 139. I love this psalm because, it show, you know, it's all about how God made me and created me and how I've been fearfully and wonderfully made. It's this incredible psalm. But, you know, I want to say this at the outset is that um, the writer of the psalm is David. And the writer of many psalms is David. And the psalms actually show us a biography of David's inner life. Um, If you look at the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel, it shows us a biography of David's outer life, of kind of what he did and where he went and how he acted and the things that he did. But actually, psalms show you a biography of his inner life that when nobody saw. They show you a picture of David's devotional life of how he wrestled with God, of how he had to worship God, of how he even complained to the Lord. And some of you know this, but the Psalms are full of complaints. There's a lot of complaining in the Psalms. Um, You know, we don't do that anymore in our worship. Where are you, O God? You know, we don't sing like that anymore. But actually, that was part of the Psalms. Uh, We do have a musical style for that called the blues. Um, (laughs) And so this is actually like the ancient blues, you know, where are you, O Lord? You know, you've searched me and know me. Um, And so the Psalms are like that. And so it's this biography of David's life, of looking at his inner world and his devotional life. And what I'd like to do is, as we look at the Psalm, I really just want to build your faith in the Lord tonight. I want to dig a well for us that we could respond to see how wonderful and how great God is. And rather than think the Psalm is about us, although it does mention us a lot, or people a lot. It's actually all about Him. And, um, and you know, as we read the psalm, I'm going to read it in chunks, in four sections, and we're going to look at it in four sections. But as we do look at it, we see, like any other psalm, that there is a backstory here. There's something going on in the background that we're not quite sure what, what it is, but we know if we read the psalm, if you read it, and we'll, again, get to it, um, especially the end part, we know that David's in trouble. He's actually going through, um, he's experiencing conflict, probably with people that are out to get him in some way, where he's kind of going through deep, deep conflict with other individuals around him that are actually wanting to slander him and wanting to um, somehow even destroy him. And there's this that's actually taking place in the background of the psalm. And you know, in the place of conflict, what does David do? He goes to God. And I want to say that actually that's a wonderful place to start, isn't it? When you're in conflict, go to the Lord. If you're in anguish, go to the Lord. If you're in a place of of struggle, go to the Lord. 
And that's exactly what David does, is that he actually pours himself out to God because he knows ultimately that his strength and his solution is found in the Lord, in who he is, um, when it is. So he starts, and he starts the psalm, and, and I want us to look at it. Now, what he does is he prays a very dangerous prayer. And let's see, um, he makes a statement in verse 1, and then right at the end, in verse 24, he actually repeats the statement in the form of a prayer. And in verse 1, he says this, he says, O Lord, and he actually uses the personal name of God, which is Yahweh, okay? It's not Tim or John or, you know, that's a sorry, bad joke. <laughs> Yahweh, it's the personal name of God. In other words, he had a personal relationship with the Lord, and as he knows the Lord, he comes to him and he says, oh Lord, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. And he makes that statement in the beginning, and then at the end of the psalm, in Psalm 23 to 24, he repeats the same idea, but he repeats it in a prayer. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Like, whoa, this is a, quite a hectic prayer. Have any of you ever prayed that prayer, O God? God, would you try me? Would you, in other words, he's saying, would you refine me? Would you put me in the fire? And would you refine me like gold? Would you test me? Would you humble me? Would you search me? Would you put your spotlight on my life? And I know, I know I've been told before, don't pray that prayer. Because if you pray that prayer, it's a dangerous prayer to pray. You, know, you want God to humble you? You want God to refine you? What? But actually David is praying that prayer. He's praying a kind of prayer that might cause God to come and say, well, actually, okay, I will search you. Because actually I want what's best for you. I want to make you flourish. I want to make you uh, actually succeed in this life. Um, I know C.S. Lewis, the author, once said, you know, sometimes we pray for the Lord to change us uh, or to renovate our hearts. Um, you ever prayed that? I know I have many times. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to change you. And he comes with a sledgehammer into the building or the house of your life, and he begins to systematically knock down false walls that you've built up in your life. And it's painful, right? It hurts. But actually, it's God's way to actually say, no, but I've got something better for you. You've built your life wrongly. You've built it on the wrong foundations. You've built the wrong um, understanding. I need to break it down. I need, to, I need to unlearn some things, and I need to come and renovate you by my spirit. And sometimes the Christian life, it's an upside-down life. You know, it's not always like butterflies and bubbles and roses and, you know, like, you know, it's all wonderful. It's times of deep valleys where actually we go through really hard times, and often it's the hand of God. Because he's, he loves us so much that he's wanting to refine us and purify us. And so David actually takes us seriously. He says, Lord, search me. In other words, he's saying this, God, would you put your spotlight on my life? Um, would my life become an open book? Here I am, Lord. I'm an open book. Would you read me? Would you investigate my life? That if there are things in me that maybe don't please you or don't, um, you know, line up to actually what you want, Lord, would you come and show me? that you would come and, and, and just kind of put me in the right path. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? And I know, um, is there anything in me that offends you? Uh, and I know I have to do this from time to time because I know I miss the mark. I know I haven't yet arrived. I, I don't glow in the dark. You know, I'm not some kind of super saint that never makes mistakes. I realize often, like, I find myself having God to correct me and convict me because I just fall short of what he wants for me. And in this place, I love this prayer because I want to ask the question as I go into these four things. is like, why could David even pray this prayer? Like, what made him trust God so much that he was willing to pray this kind of dangerous prayer? I want to say this, because he knew the Lord and he trusted God and he knew the nature and the character of God. And so he could ask God to dismantle him and search him because he knew that the Lord had something the Lord wanted him to succeed. He was a father that wants him to flourish. And I think this goes into our view of God. And so as we look through these four uh, aspects of who God is, and really that's what it is, the psalm shows us four things or attributes of what God is like. And as we do so, I want to say that by the end of this evening, and as we break bread, I pray that with all of our hearts that you 
and I would again pray this prayer for ourselves, that we would be like David this evening that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, in other words, test me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Why can he pray that? Well, he knows four things about God. And so I want to look at these four aspects about the Lord this evening. Number one, and this is the first six verses we're going to read together. Sorry, excuse me, I just want to get something to drink. All right. All right, so let's look. Psalm 139, verse 1 to 6. The first thing we're going to look at about who God is, is we see that God is omniscient. What? What does that mean? God is all-knowing. He knows everything about us. That's the first aspect that I want to focus on this evening that shows us the God that we worship, the one that we serve. And verse 1 to 6, let's read it. And I want you to look carefully at what it says about who the Lord is and what, what He does. Let's read it. O Lord, you have searched me and you know and known me. You know, see how it says, when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So what do you have this picture of? David's in awe of this God that knows everything about him. Every little detail, every part of the nitty-gritty of his life in the weeds, God knows. In fact, he goes down and he says this, and let's look exactly how God knows. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. How many times a day do you sit down? How many times a day do you rise up? He says, God knows when you're sitting down and when you're rising up. He says this, he discerns my thoughts from afar. In other words, even from a distance, and he is close, by the way, but even from a distance, he's able to discern the very thoughts of your mind and your heart. That's how much he knows. Carrying on, he says, you know my path and you know my lying down. What does that mean? It means that he knows when you travel. God knows when you go on holiday. He knows when you're driving to workplace or to a lecture. He knows when you travel and when you're resting at home. When you're lying on the couch or you're watching a program on Netflix, God sees and God knows. Then he says this, you hem me in. In, behind, and before. I know some other versions say, you squeeze me in. And the word hem literally means to surround or encircle me. And what he's saying is, God, you know everything about me, and you surround me. And the word actually hem um, was used for times when an army would go and attack a city to destroy it or conquer it. And what the army would do to destroy the city is that they would surround the city, all around the city, the north, the south, the east, and the west, and they would surround it, and therefore they would hem in the city. And he uses that language to say, God, you know so much about me, it's like that you have surrounded me. There's no thought that can escape out of my mind or no desire out of my heart that somehow can get through your defenses, get through your attack. It's like, you know, you know everything there is, about me. Uh, he surrounds you and he knows you. Um, such knowledge, and I love what he says then, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In other words, he's saying this understanding of who God is and what he knows, it's just, it's just so mind-blowing that I just cannot, I cannot comprehend it. Um, I know someone once said, like with some of the mysteries of God, you know, that if you deny the mystery of God or the trinity of God, you lose your faith. But if you try and understand the mysteries of God, you will lose your mind. <laughs> In other words, this is we dealing with the living God here who knows you so intimately and is somehow not put off by you, who knows your most wicked thoughts, your most evil thoughts, your most selfish thoughts, and somehow is not scared off by you. He loves you anyway. What kind of God is that? 
He encircles us. And so that's the first thing we see about this God is that I want to ask you the question, do you believe that God is like that? Do you believe that he really is like that, that he is all-knowing? Ahead of time, above time, before time, he is that God. Let's go on to the second one. Um, the second one is we see not only is he all-knowing, we're going to look at verse 7 to verse 12, we see that he is omnipresent or everywhere at once, all around us. And let's read from verse 7 to 12, and again, see how it speaks about the idea of the presence of the Lord, and our God is everywhere. He says this, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark with you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And so what is he doing here? Is firstly, he's asking rhetorical questions. He's kind of asking the kind of questions that you don't really need to answer. Like, where shall I go from your spirit? Um, nowhere, right? Uh, where shall I free, flee from your presence? He's trying to make the point, uh, you can't. Um, and then we think of the story of someone like Jonah, who very foolishly tried to run away from the very presence of God. I don't know if, you know, most of us would know the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, how he was, a, he was actually a godly man, loved the Lord, and he was a prophet, and God told him to go and prophesy against a certain city. But because he was in such anguish, he didn't want to go and do what the Lord had said for various reasons. He said, no, I'm, I'm tapping out, and I'm going to run away from God. Ever feel like that? I know I have. Want to run away from God? And actually, it says in, in Jonah 1 verse 3, it actually uses the same language that David uses in Psalm 139. I love this in Jonah 1.3. I don't love that he ran, but I love the, the language. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. By the way, Tarshish, what was Tarshish? Tarshish was the city as far away as he could probably get on the other side of the Mediterranean, that's where he wanted to go. Far away, it was as pagan as you can get, and that's where he wanted to go, away from the God of Israel. You can't, I want to ask you, where's your Tarshish? Where do you go when you want to escape from God? We all have our Tarshish. We all have our area where we're like, I need this thing in my life, and oh, it's too much, the spiritual life, God's working. No, I can't, you know, and, and our tendency is to run away. And I know I've, I've had my Tarshish, you know, it can be in TV or sport, um, those things that we actually can be fine in their own right, or can actually, or relationships where we find validation and approval in those things, actually, rather than going and confronting and letting the Lord deal with us. And I love this, it says, away from the presence of the Lord. And look at Psalm 139, it says, where shall I flee from your presence? What a foolish man. And we know that even while he's running from God, what does God do? God's with him. He's with him. Though I sail to the uttermost part of the sea, the Lord's with him. And the Lord has a final say with him. And I love this, what it does. Look, um, and, and he shows different areas. In case you want to run away from the Lord, look what he says. If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. By the way, in other words, if you go as high as possible, you get into a space rocket and you want to fly into space to get away from the presence of the Lord, he says, I'm there. You can't get away. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What is Sheol? Sheol was basically an ancient word dealing with the underworld. It was an ancient Hebrew concept. It had different nuances, but it deals with the underworld or the wastelands. In other words, if you're going to go into the underworld, if you think you can run away from the Lord and get to the darkest place you know, but like Jonah with Tarshish, he's there. 
he'll chase you down. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, in other words, wherever you go, he's not intimidated by your sin or by the worst parts of your darkness. And, you know, I've got a friend, um, uh, we had lunch with them a while ago, and she told us a story of her testimony of how she came to Jesus. It was just the most beautiful story. And she had been a bit like Jonah, a bit like the question that David's asking. And um, she had gone to Europe to work. She had grown up in a Christian home, but had just questioned her faith and eventually got disillusioned with Christianity, disillusioned with the whole Jesus thing. And so she ran away. She just went away, said, I want to find my own life. I don't want to live under the shadow of my, my parents' faith. I'm going. And she went to work in the Netherlands. She went to au pair in, uh, for a family in the Netherlands. And uh, while she was with them, uh, working with them, traveling, coming back, earning money, they were a very uh, pagan family. They were, they were atheists, didn't believe in God. Sorry, pagan's the wrong word. Pagan means you're the worshiper of many gods. They probably were worshippers of money and all those things. Anyway, they didn't believe in God. All right, and, uh, and they didn't believe in God, but one day she was with them helping around the house, helping the kids, when his brother, the brother of the, 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 her boss, came to visit them with his family, and the brother was a Christian, and the brother and his family, they were witnessing to his brother, telling a little bit about the Lord, and, you know, and it really irritated the family of this house, and eventually the family went, the Christian family went, and she was left washing the dishes, washing the dishes, and then the, her boss, you know, the father of their home, came in, and he was just really irritated. He was like, oh, I can't believe these Christians. Ah, you know, I can't believe that this man would actually believe and worship Jesus. And they were just kind of, ah, he, he was really angry. And she said that while she was washing the dishes, she said to him this question, yeah, I can't believe that someone would actually believe that Jesus died for their sins. And as the words came out of her mouth, she felt the Holy Spirit say to her, the Spirit came, the presence of God came into the room, and she felt the Lord say to her, but I died for your sins. And as she said, those words came out of her mouth, it was like a sword had come and cut into her heart. And she went like, anyway, she carried on, she just ignored it. And a few months later, she ended up going back to South Africa, back to Cape Town, where she ended up getting gloriously saved. She realized she couldn't run from God. And she had reconciled with Jesus being true, Jesus not just being a way, but Jesus being the way. And she, she ended up coming back to the Lord. And I love that story because I think many of us can identify with it in some way, that we've had to wrestle with that. But God promises that actually He's everywhere. And He loves us. And He will chase you down. The one thing that is good about God, He will chase you down. Not because He's like, but because He's so good. His goodness will run after you, so to speak. And He will chase you down even when you think you're hopeless. And if you're here tonight and you think like, but I've done something that's so bad, how could God ever forgive me? You don't know the grace and the power of God. Let me say that He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He can cover those things. Nothing is too difficult for Him. And so that's point number two. The Lord is everywhere, and David kind of acknowledges that. Where can I flee from his presence? Let's look at number three. Number three is we see that the Lord, firstly, is everywhere. The Lord knows everything. The third one is that the Lord created all things. He is the creator God who made us. And let's look from verse 13 to verse 18. And it says, for you formed, and look at the words that it, it, it describes here. It uses words of creating and making and forming. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there was none of them. What? Like you mean every day of your life was written in God's book? That he had planned out your life before you were born? That's what it says. Let's carry on. 
as it, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And some versions say this, actually, how precious is God's thoughts about you. That's actually probably what it's saying in Hebrew, that God's thoughts towards you are so numerous, they're like the sand of the seashore, that he's thinking about you, he has plans for you, he wants to see you succeed, that he is actually your biggest fan in some ways, without becoming weird about it. That's what it's saying. And you see these words like formed and knitted and made, and there's a sense of what? My friends, what is it? Of design, of deep design, of a sense of that you have been designed and made, that there is no one here that is an accident. There's no such thing in the economy of God. There are no accidents. And I want to ask you the question, is like, do you believe this? Do you believe that God created you, but not just created you, because he created all things, right? I mean, he created the trees and the animals, and that's the problem with our modern world, is what we do is we've actually elevated pets and animals. We're just basically a more evolved form of an animal, and therefore they have as much rights as we do. But that is not what Scripture says. In fact, the Bible says that they have not been made in the image of God. What doesn't quite say that, but it says this, that we have been made in the image of God, that there's only one type of creature, which is us, that are distinct and set apart from the rest of creation, and that's you and I, and it says that we're made in the image of God, we, to, to, to be these moral, spiritual beings that can love and create and make and sacrifice and think and decide and worship and do all those things just reflecting what God is like. I love Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Let's just look at Jeremiah 1 5. Looking at the prophet Jeremiah, amazing. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I had consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. Somehow, how does that work? I don't have no idea. <laughs> But I believe it. It's true. And I think one of the things that we might struggle with is this idea, but if I'm made in the image of God, does it mean that I'm made perfect without sin? You know, because then why do I need Jesus? Because I can just be a good person. And I think with this is to understand that we've been, uh, let me share a story with you maybe on that, is there's, there was a story of a little boy, I don't know if you've heard the story, who made a boat. And... Um, what he did was, as he made this boat, he made this boat, it was this big sailing boat, and he made it spend hours and hours and hours building this boat, crafting it out of wood, you know, building the sails and making it ready so it could sail on the little river that he, 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 he lived down the road from this river in his town where he lived. And he built this boat, he had made it, um, you know, he even crafted his initials on the side uh, and put it on the side, crafted it in and, and dug it in. And then the day came when this boat was ready to be sailed. And what he did was he put the boat in the water and he had a piece of string so that his boat wouldn't get lost down, down the river. And he put it in and he let it out and there was a bit of a wind that day and he watched with great joy and delight as what he had made and created was kind of just in the water, just sailing away, beautiful. And he had great joy and pleasure about it as he was watching this boat. But the problem came in when this massive gust of wind came and it, and it blew, 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 and it snapped the line. And there went the little boat down the river. And the boy was destroyed. My boat, my boat. He ran off to the thing down the bank, but eventually he lost the boat, lost it. And he was distraught. Like his boat that he had spent hours and hours making was gone. So he eventually walked back home like, oh, I'm going to spend hours making another one. And the next week, he's walking through town after school, and as he walks through town, he looks in the shop window, and there in the shop window was his boat. And he goes, my boat! And so he runs into the store, and he goes to the counter, to the man at the counter, and says, sir, that's my boat in the window. That's mine. You see, it's even got my initials on. It's my boat. I made this boat. And the shop owner said, I'm sorry, sir, but actually, this is my boat now. You see, I bought it. Someone came in and wanted to sell the boat. And so I bought this boat. It's my boat. It's mine. And the little boy said, but I made it. He says, it doesn't matter. If you want the boat, you've got to buy it back. You might have made it, but you've got to buy it. 
And so the little boy said, okay, I'm going to save up. How much is it? And he gave the price. And so for the next few months, this little boy did extra errands, washed his car of the family, mowed the lawn. He, he did whatever it took to earn extra money. And the day came when he had all this extra money that he had saved up. And he went to the store and he slapped the money down on the counter. Dah! That is my boat and I'm going to buy it back right now. And he counted it and he said, yes, it is. And you can buy it back. And finally, he took the boat, he cradled it in his arms, he stroked it, weeping, my boat, my boat, my boat, my boat, my boat. And he said the statement, you are now twice mine. I have made you, but now I've bought you. You know, that is a picture of the gospel right there. That although Psalm 139 says that we've been made in the image of God, each of us, made with, 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 with a, but because of sin, we've been lost, the Bible says, right? We've been lost. We've been, actually, the Bible says that we belong to the devil. When you're born into this world, we're born with the DNA of sin. We are cut off from God, alienated from the presence of God. But through Jesus, he comes, and through his blood, through his sacrifice on the cross, what does he do? He buys us back. And when we come to Christ, when we submit under him, the Father covers us, and we become a child of God. You've been made, but actually you're twice his. And when you come to Jesus, you have been bought. You belong to him. And so how great is our God? And so I want to ask you, do you believe that God has great thoughts about you? I love what Ephesians 2 says. It says this, that we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works before the beginning of time. That even before the beginning of time, he knew that you would choose him, he knew that you would serve him, and he purposed you in Jesus to have good works that you would do. Do you know that you've got good works that you're going to walk in? And I want to ask you, are you dreaming for God? Are you dreaming to be used by God? What are the things that you think the Lord has in store for you, him, uh, for you? Like, what are the things in his book that you are that you wonder, like, Lord, what is there in your book that you have about me? And I think it's a beautiful thing for us to actually start dreaming. Like, God, I want to I wanna dream. I know some of you, I know, I know some of you have this thought. Ah, oh, but, you know, now it's just fatalism. Some of you have studied philosophy or something like that, you know. Ah, oh, no, it's just fatalism, you know. It's like the Calvinist who walked down the stairs. Calvinist is basically, or the hyper-Calvinist who... Basically, they believe that God ordains everything to the finest degree, but actually will cause it to happen even whether you choose it or not. That's kind of hyper-Calvinism. It's like the hyper-Calvinist who walked down the stairs, and he tripped, and he fell down the stairs. And then he went, phew, I'm so glad that happened. That's over now, okay? Now, now I've got to wait for the next thing that God has ordained. You know? Fatal no, that's fatalism. Nowhere in the Bible does God say ever, you've got to now just wait for things to happen, and oh, well, if I just, you know, it's just going to fall into place. No, 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 no. You can choose, you can decide, you can dream, you can put your hopes out, you can put your faith out for things, you can plan, and somehow when you do those things, and as you give it to the Lord, and as you work it through, if they're, if they're big dreams, and as you work it through with others that love the Lord, you'll find that you'll stumble into the calling for your life. You'll actually stumble into it, and I find that is that I don't know the good works that He has for me. I know he's created me for them. I know he, he's made me in his image, but I don't know what they are. But I'm going to just love him. And as I love him and make good choices, I know that I'm probably going to stumble into them. You know, some people speak about God's opportunities as his open doors. And Paul says it. He says, I'm going to open a door of opportunity. And we think, okay, there's the door and I'm going to plan and I'm going to walk in it. But I don't find God's doors work like that. God's doors are often trap doors. Where you're just loving the Lord, you're trying to make good decisions, you might be planning and dreaming, but you're not forcing it to happen. You're just kind of, you're making good calls, you, you tr trusting God for things, and then one day just the door opens, ah, and you fall down through it. <laughs> right? I find that's what's happened to us in our lives. If we've trusted God to use us in a certain way, I'm not going to force it to happen. I don't go to my leader and say, Godfrey, do you know that I, did you know that I'm actually a leader? God's called me, and I'm dreaming for it. Why don't you release me? And I'm going to now plan, and next, in three months, I'm going to be this in the Lord, or six months, I'm going to be that, you know? 
Like, no, 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 no. I'm just going to love him. I'm going to serve as best as I can. I'm going to make good decisions. And in the right time, the trap door is going to open for me. I find that's the way that the Lord works. So anyway, that's just, that's just, that's just free. I didn't plan any of that. It's, that's just a freebie. Okay. All right, let's look at the fourth one. And we see this about God. So we see number three is that God is a creator God who has plans for your life. That, let me ask you this question, sorry. Do you believe that God wants you to be a success? Do you believe that God is for you and not against you? Do you believe this, that in Jesus, when God looks at you, he delights over you? That he doesn't just put up with you. Oh, it's that problem child again. The black sheep of the family. That when God looks at you, if you've put your faith in his son Jesus, and you're covered by his righteousness, even though we're on a journey, all of us, but when he looks at you in Jesus, he delights in you. That he doesn't just love you, he actually likes you. It's like, oh, that's my boy. That's my girl. I've made you, and I've created you for good works. Oh, you're mine. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that, in a sense, you have his favor? And I think this is paramount to being a Christian, is to have an assurance to know that you are loved by your father and that he has made you. In a sense, that you should walk into the room and not say it, but think like, I am God's favorite. I, I'm his favorite. There's almost something of that that I think is a healthy kind of, you can do it in a, but a healthy way to have. And I remember um, we actually were leading a church. Uh, we already planted this church in, in the Southern Cape. I was about 30 years old. Um, Eddie and I, we had gone and our kids were four years old and two years old, our two little girls. And I'd been serving the Lord on leadership in uh, Josh Jen. We were sent out to plant and I remember for the first time of, in my life, I began to be confronted with a sense that I didn't really believe that actually I was loved by God. It was the weirdest thing. I'd experienced his love, but deep down, I realized, and, and as the church I began to get tested, I remember one day came where I realized, like, actually, I don't really believe that God is for me, that he wants me to succeed and flourish. And I remember having to repent. I came to the end of myself. I'd been tested in an area in the church, and I, I felt very inadequate. And in that place, I just remember having to deal with the fact that actually, God, you're for me. And he wants you to succeed at all costs. And he's given you his spirit. He's given you the church. He's given you the Bible. He's given you leaders. He's given you, um, uh, he's given you so much salvation so that you could flourish, not for yourself, but that you could live for the glory of God. Let's look at the fourth one. The last one. The Lord, the fourth one, is we're going to look at how the Lord is a just and holy God. Now, these verses, we're going to look at verse 19 to 22. This, I wish this wasn't in the psalm. I don't know why the psalm has put this in here, because it, it, in some ways it messes up the entire psalm. It's a good thing I'm not, I didn't write parts of Scripture, right? <laughs> and if we look at this, it's most uncomfortable, because now you realize, as we read this section, you can put it up, thanks, Ryan. If we look at this, it like suddenly changes tone. You know, it's everything about, oh God, you know, wherever I go, you're there and you know everything about me and I'm created, I'm loved by God and I've been made in his image and all these wonderful things and, you know, and you hem me in and surround me. It's like, you know everything about me and suddenly there's a change of tone where it says, and oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Like, what the heck? You know, you're reading this and you're feeling all good and it's like, yeah, this is wonderful. Oh, isn't God, isn't God kind? Isn't God gracious? Isn't he such a good father? And then you read this. Oh God, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? What? Is that in the Bible? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. I hate them, he says. Oh, I love you, Lord. I hate them. <laughs> I was like, what? Is, is David schizophrenic? Like, 
Doesn't he know God? Doesn't he know the love of God? Like, what is going on here? Right? But then we realize, obviously, there's some kind of backstory where there are violent people that are coming against him, and they hate God. They don't just dislike God. They're not religious. They hate God, and they want to see him be destroyed. You know, I wanted to say this, that in this world, we, and yeah, I've shared this in other places before, some of you might have heard this, but if we put our hand up to follow Jesus, and we say that we belong to him, and we love him, and we are Bible believers, you will be hated for serving Jesus. People won't just dislike you, some people will hate you. They will want to see you destroyed. Now, that, you might, that might sound extreme, but we have a an enemy, we are, the kingdom of darkness will come against the children of light. And part of being a Christian is resilience and learning how to stand even when you experience the frown and the displeasure of people that are not Christians. Now, it doesn't mean that we fight against them. That's not what it's saying. But anyway, let's look at the scripture. By the way, I want to say this, number one on this, this is the word of God. This is part of the Bible, and this has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. David is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he's writing this, like the rest of Scripture. That's the first thing. Secondly, we have to acknowledge that this is actually very uncomfortable and difficult for us to read, partly because we're reading it as 21st century Christians, as kind of tree huggers, bunny huggers, People that like, you know, war is bad, you know, any conflict is bad. But actually, they, he was living in a time where obviously he's dealing with things in a slightly different way than we are. Now, the thing is this, just because David says this, he says, Lord, I hate them, I hate them, would you destroy them? It doesn't mean that God felt the same way, necessarily, Right? What David is doing is David is sharing his emotion, he's sharing his feelings, and it's true to him at that time. It doesn't mean that God is now, because remember, the Bible says that we are called to love our enemies. And obviously, of those in Christ, what did God do? God himself came, and he didn't destroy us. What did he do? He rescued us. He's given us an opportunity that we could get drawn into his family, even though we're his enemies. We rebelled from him. And so we see that this is a difficult thing here, but I want to say that this section deals with justice and the justice of God because at some point, God will destroy his enemies, the Bible says. In other words, those that don't repent and don't um, accept his search and rescue mission or don't accept his terms as a good and kind God, those who choose to walk down and if you harden your heart and you rebel from God, the Bible says that one day there will be the wrath of the Lamb that we will have to face, that those outside of Jesus will have to face. So it gives opportunity, but at some point, He comes to judge the living and the dead. And each of us, the Bible says, will have to stand before Him and give an account for our lives. And if we're in Jesus, we are loved, we're accepted, and He reaches out to us. But for those that have rejected Him, Bible says that there will be judgment, there will be, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth on that day. But why can't God just like love everyone, accept everyone? Well, he has to deal with sin. And God doesn't sweep the sin, our sin under the rug of the universe, saying, oh, you know, it's not like a big Father Christmas in the sky. He's just. That means that he's so good that he deals with sin. And I know some of us struggle with this concept, but it's true. It's a sign of justice. If we want a God of love, we have to have a God of justice. You know, let me, let me, let me, you quick, you, I've been preaching too long, actually. I need a, way too long, but I need a land. But I want to say this. Let's imagine this. Let's imagine that you, your best friend, uh, or maybe if you, any of you married here, quite a, some of you, how many married? Okay, awkward, not many. Okay, but let's imagine, let's imagine you get married, and your partner, you are at work, and, and, and your partner's at home, now, let's use parents, your mother. Let's use your mother. Everyone loves their mothers, right? And your mother's at home, and someone breaks into your family home and comes in and rapes your mother and then 
kills her and cuts her up into pieces and leaves her there. And you come home and your mother, and I know some of you have experienced trauma, actually family trauma, maybe even not that far off from this. What would you, in you would rise firstly anger and a sense of injustice, like this is wrong. Someone has sinned, someone has crossed the line and has done something despicable. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you expect a good government or a good law enforcement to do about it? Would you expect them to kind of say, oh, it's okay. Oh, you know, let's just forgive them. Is that what we would expect? What would a good government do? A good government would punish lawbreakers. That's how we have peace. And in the same way, although it's hard to understand, because God is good, he actually has to deal with sin. But thankfully this, he's already dealt with our sin by punishing Jesus on our behalf. So that debt has been paid for, but if you don't receive Jesus, then that punishment is still on you, and you will be judged for your own sin. And so in some ways, Jesus is our refuge. He's the one we run to. He's our rescue mission. He's the one who comes to us to save us. And I know many of you know this, but if you're here and maybe you didn't know that, I want to say that this is the gospel truth. And this is why it speaks about the justice of God. And I love this. And let's close. And it closes with this. Then he does all this. And then at the end in verse 23, what does David do? He says a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And I love this. You know what he does? He says, search me, O God. He's not saying, oh, Lord, look what they've done. You know, can't you see my enemies? And oh, it's, it's, it's not my fault that I'm going through all of this. It's their fault. And he becomes this victim. He doesn't end there. Now, if he ended there, there'd be a problem because David would be a victim. But David's not a victim because what does he do? He says, Lord, look at my heart. Am I wicked here? Am I, have I sinned? Have I messed up? Do I need to repent? Is there anything in me that needs to change? And so I want to close with this, my friends, as we look at who God is, as we see what the nature of God is like, the one we worship and love, that he points a mirror back to us to say, don't ever be the victim. Don't ever try and um, shift the blame. You know, the devil can never stop you growing in God. Do you know what the only thing that can ever stop you growing in God there's only one thing that can ever stop you growing in God. It's not the devil. It's not your mother-in-law when you get one. It's not a professor or a lecturer or a person in your life or someone in authority. The only person that can stop you growing in God is you. Is you. So how much do you want it? How much do you want it? How much do you want to grow in Him? How much do you want to be trained in the ways of the Lord? And if you don't, it's your fault. And I love what David says, search me, O God, and know me. Oh, Lord, would you come and do it? And so I want to say this, that as we worship him and know him, there's a prayer that we need to pray. If you want to grow in the Lord, and you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and you want to become like him into maturity, sometimes the pathway of pain, and of suffering, and of pruning, Sometimes it's glorious, sometimes it's hard, where he turns up the heat, right? But we can do no other. You can pray no other, but search me, O oh Lord. Make my life an open book. So like, let's pray, and we'll respond in worship, and we're going to have communion together. I know I've gone long this evening. Please forgive me. I, I don't actually like to preach very long. I don't normally, but when I'm with you guys, I realized two weeks ago as well, I preached long. Please, I'm, I'm so sorry. I really tried to do it 30 minutes. Thank you. You see, it's part of your suffering. <laughs> part of your becoming like Jesus. You've got to put up with me for like 50 minutes, however long it was. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's pray together. Come. Oh, I love you, Lord. Love you, Lord. Love you, Lord. We worship you tonight. I want to pray firstly for just a group of people here this evening. And if you... Um, have been, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're a bit like that friend of mine in the Netherlands, I used that example where she had been running from the Lord, running from the presence of God, 
But the Lord had her. The Lord knew her. The Lord loved her in her sin. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you know God is drawing you and you've been resisting him, resisting him, resisting him. I want to say to you today, God, he doesn't want you to change and jump through hoops. He wants you to come as you are in your, in your own brokenness and he will love you. He will transform you. He will do the work inside of you. He will give you a new heart. Maybe you're here and you know that that's, that's you and you've been running. But you know tonight that stops. Tonight you stop running. Tonight you surrender. Because you know that he is the way and the truth and the life. And the only way to the Father is through Jesus. Is there anyone this evening? If that's you, just raise your hand. Say, Mike, that's me. I, I, want, I want you to, I'm going to stop running. I'm going to surrender my life to the Lord Jesus. Is there anyone that would like to do that this evening? With every head bowed. You want to give your life to Christ. You want to turn away from your old and turn to him. Is there anyone you feel, maybe your heart's beating fast and you know like, ah, I know this is for me, Lord. Is there anyone that needs to do that? Maybe you've been made, but you, you know, he needs to buy you back. He's bought you back, but you need to embrace the gift of eternal life. Bless me. Then for the rest of us, <laughs> we're going to do this. We are um, we're going to have communion this evening, and um, what we're going to do is we're going to break bread. And just as a reminder, the Bible says that when we take of the juice, it represents the blood of Jesus. And when we drink of the blood of Je- drink of the juice, and we eat of this, we remember the gospel. What I want you to do this evening is I would want us, I want, I'd, I'd want us when we're ready now, is um, we're firstly going to pray and just give thanks for the body and the blood of Jesus. And then what I want you to do is I want you to um, take a, um, one of those little glasses and a, a wafer, and I want you to go and pray with someone. And find someone to pray with. You can pray with your friend or if you feel to pray with someone else. I'd like us to try as much as possible to pray for one another. If you're here as a visitor, no pressure. You don't need to. But as much as possible, I'd like us to do that. And what I want you to do is out of those four areas, or maybe there was something this this evening that the Lord put his finger on. um, I want you to, to say, would you pray for me for that thing? that the Lord put his finger on tonight. And I want us to minister to each other, just to pray. If you don't know what to pray, just pray your best prayer. Just as best as you can. Doesn't have to, when I say your best, it doesn't have to be the best prayer. Just your best prayer. Just, just with all your heart, pray for that person. And um, I want us to pray. So who would like to come and give thanks for the body and blood of Jesus? Um, would anyone like to pray? Who would like to do that? Mic's open. close our eyes. Dear Lord, as we sit here together today as a family, Lord, as a family in you, I pray that we will all just have on our hearts such gratitude for the work that you have done, Lord, the sacrifice that you have made. Thank you so much for taking our sins, Lord. Thank you so much for wiping us clean. Lord, I pray that as we break bread and drink drink the juice as your blood, Lord, I pray that we will just Give such thanks to you and that you'll just put a weight on our hearts of the magnitude of your sacrifice, Lord. Pray that everyone will just feel so loved and just that they belong, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, yeah, as you, as you, I want to say this. If you are checking Jesus out, maybe you're still on the outskirts, but you haven't given your life to the Lord, I want to say don't break bread. The Bible says if you take communion without wanting to really seek the Lord. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying you don't have sin in your life. We all got sin in our lives. But that you are not, you don't want to serve him. Please don't break bread because the Bible says you eat and drink judgment on yourself because you make a mockery of the blood of Jesus. So I want you to take communion. And if you're not sure and you're saying, God, I want to serve you. My life's a bit of a mess. Please take communion. 
please. Because it means it's a, it's a symbol of our, of our forgiveness, and God would want to wash us and cleanse us. We all need cleansing, right? Don't feel condemned, but do it because you know you, you want to you wanna, you wanna get closer to Him. Then we take communion, and let's pray together as we do so. So let's go for it. As you're ready, you can find there's here on the front, both sides. Um, please find someone to pray with.